0: Okay, I was on Reddit, which you know any social media. I mean, even Reddit. I feel like Reddit is a better place to have conversation through like forums rather than tweets. Or, but mm, it sounds like <laughs> a mistake already. I know, and I follow one of the uh, subreddits that was like recommended according to some computer algorithm. It's called Ask Women. That's the
1: subreddit. And <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were just going to be like, I don't know, I was on my Game of Thrones or Star Wars forum, which, you know, those are already going to be full of scum and villainy, but ask women. <laughs> You're just, okay, let's see what the internet says. Well, and and I checked the, because I've been banned by a couple subreddits for not following the rules. Not ask women, I hope.
0: No, no, not ask women. This does not result in a ban, but it did result in a comment being removed by the moderators and uh, normally I don't actually interact with the Ask Women subreddit, but I like to see the answers that women give. And it's mostly women responding because it's called Ask Women. Now, I checked. yes. <laughs> I checked the rules because I found a question. I was like, oh, I think I can actually chime in here to see if men could respond. And one of the things, yes, a man can respond as long as the question isn't directed towards women specifically. So I was like, great. And the question was, uh, this I, I assume this one woman said, I'm really tired of the dating scene and was wondering if our parents and grandparents had it right and arranged marriages were the way to go. Uh, how, how would you feel about an arranged marriage? And so I was like, oh, well, I actually have experience in this. And so maybe I can uh, drop some wisdom, you know, on this individual. Because it's not as simple as just like, oh, I'm tired of dating. Let me just hook up with somebody for the rest of my life. Like, that's not how it works. Generally, there's like a cultural basis behind that decision uh, unless i guess you're from the south and you have like that old money like the really wealthy individuals who were arranged marriages i think are maybe more common than than not um these days mm.
1: i i don't know i i would only push back and it depends on how far you want to stretch the definition of arranged marriage i would say uh, living in lexington kentucky where there are a lot of Wealthy families that have been in the horse industry for a long period of time. I would say your probably dating pool is more selective and smaller. I don't know if you want to say that that's, you know, there's probably different families that uh, marry off their children because they run in the same economic circles, but I don't think right. that's the same thing necessarily. Not quite, but you'd be surprised. That absolutely does come into play. And now, arranged
0: marriage isn't as simple as you're being forced to marry this individual and that's it. There's a lot more to it than that. Uh, there's, okay, well, our family knows this family. Why don't you talk to this person, see if you get along? And, and there is absolutely a sense of... Uh, choice there it's not as simple as no you're gonna marry this person and you have no say in it whatsoever it's not the hunger games is what you're saying (laughs) no not at all (laughs) no and and nobody can nobody can sub in for you either (laughs) (laughs) that's not a thing now i responded to this person i was like hey i actually do have experience i got an arranged marriage and i am a male i wanted to put that out there right away uh i was like do you have any cultural basis for your your uh, um, possible desire to get an arranged marriage or is it just because you're tired of dating and that comment got removed by the moderators and I was like what <laughs> and I and I messaged them I was like hey uh why and those they said that I was derailing the conversation <laughs> I was like oh oh was I and uh, the, the you gotta entire listen to
1: this podcast I feel the same <laughs> way as your co-host every
0: week <laughs> I I I saw all the con- the the replies were like no fuck that nobody's going to tell me what to do and you know there's a lot of pro feminist stuff there which I was like I'm I'm always on board for that but I feel like certain topics it isn't as simple as just no or yes I think there's a little more to it and I, that's what I wanted to get into and apparently I asked why was how is this derailing the conversation they said I didn't answer the person right away like that's the first thing you should do I was like oh so I guess i shouldn't ask them a little more to clarify what they meant so
1: i got real upset about it and i was like you know this is so old-fashioned of you getting upset about uh message boards (laughs) right and so you know now my, my i unfollowed that subreddit right away i was like i i can't
0: with this you know these individuals and these moderators i guess who don't know where I'm coming from and maybe I just
1: can't with these women folk. I just can't (laughs) do it anymore. That is
0: not what I said. (laughs) But anyway, it got me so mad. And you know, I really haven't thought about it since much. Uh besides uh, reminding myself, I was like, I gotta tell you about this because I'm so upset and I there's only so many people I can really talk to about, you know, nonsense such as this. Trilogy In theory, my name is Webb and this is my co-host Mike and we wrap up our August trilogy with a few films that feature a number of arguments in one room. Now the thing is, it's so hard to make a movie, period. You know, you've got to create the characters, establish plot, generate momentum for your story, motivation for your characters. You have to determine a plausible and satisfying conclusion on some level and To try and do that in one room or a specific location, all in real time, is like an added pressure that we don't see very often. I feel like you see that with TV shows quite a bit, that bottle episode, but you can get away with it. You can get away with it in TV because you might be already familiar with the characters. The plot might be something that has been building over the course of a season. And so you see that in the middle of a series where you have those bottle episodes, But in films, you really don't. So anytime a film tries to attempt it, I'm always very interested. And thankfully, we found uh, three films here that do a fairly good job of generating a good amount of uh, narrative thrust in these films. Which film really leans into that concept and is most effective?
1: Well, the most logical is 12 Angry Men, correct? Because it's based in... Reality that these twelve individuals um, who are angry and who are men, which uh, <laughs> I know would anger some subreddits that web peruses, <laughs> are are tasked with uh, performing their their civic duty uh, to to basically rule on this young man's life. And so there's not much in the way of buying as far as why the fuck are we still in this room. I think the hate fleet also manages to do that uh acceptably because you have uh, the elements a winter storm uh that have pushed all these men to this one location even though they have uh i guess varying levels of interest in this young lady uh some would like to hang her some would like to free her uh so she can i guess rape and pillage the landscape with her gang going forward neither one is uh you know nice 10 cloverfield lane That's the one that I suppose toys with the concept the most as far as never firmly establishing whether or not they should be in this bunker. It depends on who you believe, the John Goodman character, uh, or I guess Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who is to some degree a blank slate. There's a car accident, so she was not privy uh, to the happenings, the supposed happenings of what's going on. Uh, So I I guess I would turn it back to you. I I suppose it depends on... um, how enthusiastic you are for the filmmaker using this particular conceit. And while 12 angry men is the most logical, most practical, uh, it's probably not the most interesting choice because it doesn't feel like a choice, right. To have these characters in this place. I'm definitely not going to say anything that has JJ Abrams in the credits is the most interesting, anything, uh, so that leaves me with uh, Tarantino and race relations in The Hateful Eight. We have made the joke before. There's an episode we did upon its when it was a new release where you and I were amused greatly by Mr. Tarantino uh, choosing to have the widest and largest possible screen to see this. And like, you know, uh, you know, Vista Vision or whatever the fuck it's called and go to the roadshow and watch it. Uh, what film are you doing this for, Tarantino? Oh, it's the one where they're all in a room together. That's <laughs> that's the <laughs> right. One. So I would say that The Hateful Eight would probably be my choice because it's the most interesting. Uh, the way that it's filmed, that you choose to have, uh, these cast of characters boxed in, uh, as you as you said that uh, that sort of television conceit. Um, so I would I would go with that as far as which one I probably like the best. It's I'm not going to throw a curveball here. It's 12 Angry Men. Uh, you know, We we put a classic in here. I would love nothing more uh, to go against it, but I, I can't. That's, that's <laughs> the one that I overall enjoyed the most as far as watching this month for our trilogy.
0: Yeah, I feel like I asked the question as a bit of a setup just to talk about how great the 12 Angry yep, Men is. I knew it was coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you're absolutely right. The setting is practical, and it's actually the most accessible. Everybody who is watching the film that is familiar with any aspect of the concept of a courtroom drama or the legal system immediately understands why these individuals are trapped, quote unquote, in this room and what the ultimate goal is. And what's funny is the goal might change depending on the viewer. You might be like, well, the goal is to convict the guy, right? And so ultimately that might be one bias that you are bringing to the viewing experience where reality, the goal is to find out either the truth or to determine if there's enough evidence i think there you go i I, I apologize there is only one goal the goal is to determine whether there is enough evidence and if there is any reasonable
1: doubt to send this kid off to die erroneous uh the goal is to get to the baseball game that's (laughs) (laughs) guilty innocent whatever (laughs) let's speed this up to be fair, I'm sure the game gets rained
0: out, so that goal is ultimately null and void. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a wonderful, wonderful film that really does build uh, quite a bit of tension as the characters are switching their stances or kind of going back and forth between them. I, I do love The Hateful Eight because I think there is an added bit of pressure on the writer and director to... Find a reason for these people to be in this place together. And nature is a great one. Uh, people have been trapped in snowstorms before. I guess the only one, the outlier, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, is 10 Cloverfield Lane, where you are really stretching and devising a reason for these uh, three individuals to be in this bunker together. And like you mentioned, and I thought about this as I was listening back to our episodes. one of the things I do like about 10 Cloverfield Lane is that... The script brings back all of these little uh, Chekhov guns, I guess. Like, the things that it establishes do come into play later on. That might get a little too cutesy for the the seasoned viewer such as yourself. As you mentioned, you didn't like that everything kind of had uh, uh, was tied up into a nice bow. Uh, I kind of enjoyed that. But it does feel artificial at the end of the day. Even compared to The Hateful Eight where everything kind of gets wrapped up. They all, for the most part, end up dying. But yeah, so I feel like we're both on the same page when we come to these three films. Where
1: do you uh, stand as far as this time? I think this film, the type of it, uh, usually revolves around murder, strangely. Uh, yes! Yeah, you know, that sort of locked room murder mystery. And all three of our films, while they are, they are not that, the hate flight comes the closest as far as who poisoned the coffee. That's, that's where they, they sort of dip their toes in, into those, the old standby, the sort of Agatha Christie uh, style, who done it. But what, what do you think? Do you think that is, as you said earlier, these sort of narrative thrusts that if we're going to stick people in a room or we're going to stay there with them, <laughs> does someone have to have to die? And in, in 12 angry men, I guess there's the, <laughs> there's already been someone who's been killed and the possibility that you would send a young man to his death, uh, If you find him guilty, I guess there is that element. There is a knife uh, that's thrown about somewhat aggressively between our uh, 12 angry men. Can you think of a film where it's just two people in a room without the threat of violence? Yes,
0: and I, we're on the same page. Literally, my next note here was, do you think it's pessimistic to think that an argument or some kind of uh, some threat of violence needs to be established? as a driving force for people to be locked in a room, and I absolutely did come up with one which is essentially a hangout movie that you might appreciate. Okay. Which I which is the Breakfast Club. I think those individuals are trapped in a room, not by any sort of force of violence, but kind of as a repercussion as to something that they did to piss off the establishment. And
1: it's not a major threat because it's just that day. Clearly Webb uh not threatened at all by uh, the aggression, the young male aggression of uh, Judd Nelson did not have the effect <laughs> on you that you thought he was going <laughs> to beat up one of the dorks <laughs> trapped in the detention with him. I was just about to mention
0: that he's the one who's there probably for a much longer time than <laughs> the other individuals. <laughs> but yeah, it ultimately is a hangout movie where even the arguments among the individuals stuck in detention, there isn't violent aggression there. Uh, a little bit here with the jock, you know, uh, Emilio
1: Estevez, but yeah, he's going to pin you boy gets out of hands. Like I'm on the wrestling team. I, I know my stuff. Can <laughs> right. I uh, interject here? I've you. I've never actually been that big of a fan of that movie. And I have to think that I think the first time I watched it in full, I think it was one of those, like we were in middle school and one of the days where the teacher didn't want to do shit. instead of so like throwing a movie, <laughs> but they tried to couch it. Like this movie will be important to uh your social development like we need to, like think about your place i guess in the uh the totem pole of of middle school <laughs> dynamics, and it just was really incredibly awkward because i you know most most kids don't fit into that exact role but they're trying to do the uh you know the the sort of staples. The stereotypes, the archetypes, I guess, is what you know. John Hughes is going for there. But I do remember that by the end of it, I thought, well, that was okay. I'm just glad I didn't have to like learn anything today. I like, just got to watch a movie. That was fine. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember a very like, Judd Nelson-like type, and you know, this is like 7th or 8th grade, went off at the end of it when we were trying to have our discussion. I'm pretty sure he was the only one to answer the question. It was a one-man podcast. There was no back and forth. And he despised that there was any hint that the the princess character uh as she's called would have had any sort of physical attraction or or the thought in her head that she would end up with the you know the the possibly future criminal or current criminal the uh you know the punk kid, and I'm kind of nodding my head like, yeah, it is probably bullshit, you know it probably wouldn't happen. But I have to stop nodding my head and agreeing with him silently in that class because it became this awkward, like, come on to, like, the prettiest girl in the class who's like, you'd never go out with me, would you? Would you? And it was like... <laughs> <laughs> so if she says no, it proves your point. Like, you're, you're putting her in a position of, like, like, if she says yes, you win. If she says no, you win. I mean, it was a clever ruse <laughs> from this young man, but it just made everyone really fucking uncomfortable in that room. So you're talking about, there was only one argument being made that day and everyone just wanted to get the hell out of there. Like, that that was a threat <laughs> for us for middle schoolers, that, that conversation. I really don't think the Breakfast Club should be teaching anybody about social archetypes. And, and that ca- may have been the last class to get that one. After that conversation, <laughs> I think it yeah. was tabled going forward.
0: <laughs> it ultimately is more of a, a, not satire, but I think a reflection of, and maybe a meditation on those archetypes. Not necessarily, you should learn from this. I think there's a message, but oh well. Yeah,
1: the hottest girl should be going out with me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's funny because I definitely see myself as uh, Anthony Michael Hall. I'm I'm the brain, even though... I guess I would be the smartest of that bunch. I'm not even saying that I'm the smartest of, you know, any of them. But I also felt the kind of pressure that he did from his parents. So what I do appreciate about The Breakfast Club, and I still do, I still love that movie. And it's one of the few movies I think that's extremely popular in the mainstream. Everybody's like, oh, it's a classic. And even I'm like, yeah, it is. Like, it's hard for me. I watched it in in its uh, entirety for the first time, not even that long ago. But even I couldn't say that nah, yeah this is this is absolutely very good and especially when you gravitate towards one of the
1: uh, you know five characters and Fuck, the five I don't know. Of high schoolers gravitate towards the gender if i'm honest like even then. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you don't gravitate towards the principal
0: what's it uh Paul Gleason i think i think you're okay i think maybe that's the goal you can be the gender that's totally fine as long as you're not the <laughs> You know, the bull, I think that's kind of the whole point of the movie. But I don't know, maybe not. I I like how this episode, this wrap-up has devolved into just talking about (laughs) – we're so in sync with these three movies. We're like, let's just talk about The Breakfast Club. (laughs) But yeah, I thought that was a very good example of a film that is absolutely in one location where – Argument while they are taking place, uh, they are there's no threat of violence among. I'm I'm never I'm not afraid that one of these students are going to kill each other by the end of this film. Nor
1: is one of them going to die, and we got to figure out who it is. Obviously janitor, but yeah. You know. How important uh, to you know? I guess we'll get back a little bit to our trilogy. How important do you think it is to have uh, a point of view? that is reflective of maybe your stance if you were in that situation we you know we just did that with breakfast club as far as like well you have to have someone that you kind of like can see yourself in it's you know the the dramatics are much more heightened here with the threat of violence or death uh or the decision of a young man's life so we did that a little bit with 12 angry men in that episode as far as like well what's you know what's your i guess what you want to play in uh you know a stage play and you of course, you know, cast yourself as the bombastic star, um, <laughs> which I think anyone who's listened to these episodes will notice. Yes, you're front and center. Uh, this is Webb. This is Trilogy Theory. Oh, there's Mike over there, too. That's my co host. I always, I always say co host, and
0: anytime I do the metadata for these episodes, it's always Mike and
1: Webb. It's never Webb and Mike. I'm glad you're honoring uh, the uh, alphabetic uh, system of credits. <laughs> So, let's look at, the, like, Hateful Eight uh, and *Tin Cloverfield Lane. Um, I I would say, yet again, Hateful Eight does a better job in giving you a variety of villainy, I guess, to pick from. All, all of these people are some manner of... I guess, you know, some manner of sin that they're committing here, whether it's, you know, lawful, but being a bounty hunter, they still, their bread and butter is tracking down and killing people. So no one here is that great. Um, Except for probably the people who work at Minnie's haberdashery that just are unsuspecting victims of violence, but 10 Cloverfield lane, I think has a sterner hand as far as the point of view you're supposed to have is Michelle played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead, because we don't really know. And that was my biggest problem with the film initially, by having it be part of the Cloverfield franchise, is I felt like you're doing a disservice to the unknown there. Because it's like, well, there's got to be something sci-fi related, be it aliens, be it a plague, whatever it is. Uh, in some respects, we kind of have to give John Goodman a little leeway. Um, but is there is there an alternative, you think, with 10 Cloverfield Lane? Can you look at John Goodman and his actions and be like, yeah, he's probably right. because he is so... You know, dare I say it, web-like is bombastic <laughs> as he is. To say, we're saying this is my bunker, my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'll watch Molly Ringwald if I want all day, and I'm going to talk about her on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and we're bringing it all together.
0: <laughs> I think there are fleeting moments where you absolutely are on his side, especially with – Mary Elizabeth Winston's one interaction with uh, the woman who is outside, and she won't let her in
1: because she has those horrible facial. Uh, uh, <laughs> Look, I love that the one time the Michelle character hesitates is like, ooh, you're ugly. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I want you in here. Your... Of course, you know. It goes on to where it's like, okay, there's something in the air that uh, has affected this woman, uh, and we can't bring this this plague in here. But that is the that's initially what steadies her hand. Is like, yeah. <laughs> only hot people in here. <laughs> Fatty gets a pass because he built the place.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, that's the thing. It's like the first impression is absolutely visual and that's the only real thing that she can go by and then as the interaction continues she sees how uh completely unhinged the individual is but even in that moment you're like oh you're on her side and kind of and by i guess association on john goodman's side because i wouldn't let that person in either she is not hot enough
1: (laughs) that uh that judd nelson guy I went to school with was totally right. It's like, we're never going to get past those first impressions. It's bullshit. It's not happening. <laughs> right. <laughs> um,
0: In terms of point of view, overall, 12 Angry Men does kind of get away with having this blank slate, this totally level-headed person be the person that you need to kind of see the court case from. And I think that works out really well, because ultimately they are trying to They're not trying to get on a soapbox, even though there are plenty of those moments, but it's a lesson that needs to be learned for everybody. This is not just about morality. It's more about society and the way that we engage one another. With The Hateful Eight, it is very interesting because you're shifting points of view and your allegiances constantly throughout the film, and that's what creates a lot of tension. Again, Tarantino's such a fantastic writer because he can do something like that. It's such a... Gosh, he's so tricky in that way. Really, it shows a mastery of of one's craft. Tan Cloverfield Lane is ultimately, once again, the odd man out where it is incredibly basic as to like, okay, you should be cheering for this individual. Here's a good guy. Here's another good guy. And here's your villain. So it is the least interesting of are three films and that's kind of I think where we are at this point with with this trilogy which I am less harsher on it so much so that after really thinking about this film I went through my letterbox and removed as many ratings as I could I was like I don't want to rate films anymore I'll put a blurb as to like hey I like this aspect of it maybe not this much but I'm tired it's like I can't oh, give ten cool feel
1: now we gotta read your stupid <laughs> thoughts on there.
0: <laughs> well, what I decided it was like I'll put a I'll, I'll put the heart like thing if I like if I like I I recommend this one, but it's like if I watch something like uh, Takashi Mike's Itchy the Killer, I, I, you've heard kind of like the uh, the atmosphere of this film and, and like kind of how it's revered by certain cinephiles and how gross and violent it can be. I'm sure you've heard.
1: I've I've heard it's gross and violent, and I've always yes. scrolled right past. Like, nope, not for right. Me. Well, as I started to watch more of Mikay's films, and some I like,
0: some I don't like, but I always feel something. And I was like, you know what? It's time for me to watch Ishii the Killer. And I actually bought it on iTunes. It was four ninety nine. I was like, this is it. It's time to watch it. Sure enough, the film begins. Like its title, uh, uh, the title of the film is formed from. <laughs> a character who has just masturbated and his semen forms the title of the film. And I'm just like, fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. So there I mean, even that four
1: 99 film... right there. On the screen.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I decided I was like, you know what? I'm going to give it a two and a half because I'm, I like a lot of it, but I also
1: disliked a lot of it. And you so you got to keep these ratings because I love like open with semen forming your titles. That's an automatic two and a half. <laughs> that's the cap.
0: <laughs> well, I'm like, like right this. down the. I'm right down the middle, where it's like there's stuff I like and there's stuff I dislike about this one, and then I also gave I think ten gold real and two and a half,
1: where I'm like, <laughs> like I don't think I can't put these two on the same level here. But that's that's the wrong way to look at it, right? Because I, like we we have another classic film, uh, coming up next next month. Uh, and the way I rate that one compared to, uh, you know, our second selection is trash in a way. <laughs> it's popcorn <laughs> trash. And I, I don't think you can look at, you know, on a one to five scale, which is letterboxed Like, how do I fairly assess how much better this classic is than this trash? I just try to look at it as far as what each film, uh, which game they're playing. I just try to look at it as far as did they succeed in their area? Um, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not putting a Kurosawa film up against a De Palma film every time. <laughs> right. That being said, I probably have watched far more De Palma and enjoyed it immensely, but you know, you, they're not, they're not even in the same ballpark. I don't think normally. Certainly, but I guess in my mind, because I'm very OCD about this
0: stuff, and I need to find a way to organize my thoughts, and Letterboxd is just kind of that. I decided it'd be better off if I just don't do it, which I think decreases the odds. I mean, I don't, I'm not as active on Letterbox anyways, but it decreases the chances that I'm going to be discussing these things with more people if I don't have a star rating. Yeah, because you're yes. right,
1: people don't want to read. Yeah, spend more time on. Uh... Are ask women. <laughs> that's where all, of your, <laughs> that's where all of your letterbox reviews can be found. <laughs>
0: so, did you think that this trilogy was a success, despite the fact that
1: we're both a little down on Ten cool feeling compared to the other two? I think first off, we you know just by the the concept, the the theme of boxing ourselves in that helps. So we limit our scope as far as you know which films. Uh, attempt uh, this style of storytelling. I think it was successful. Um, you know, some may argue, <laughs> I, I think you even pointed it out, it's like, man, Hateful Eight came out like two months before, <laughs> before 10 Cloverfield Lane. We didn't successfully probably span uh, all of cinema to, to find this, but I think that they each approached it in a different enough way that it made it interesting to see how uh, various filmmakers would approach uh, this particular not problem. Uh, I guess you could look at it as a problem as far as how to make it visually interesting. I agree with you that 10 Cloverfield Lane, um, much like other J.J. J. Abrams properties, like <laughs> the more that's revealed, uh, it doesn't seem to speak to me as far as the characters developing as much as it is that they wrote themselves into a corner and then it's like oh <laughs> there's a way that we can get out but as we discussed john goodman made these little tunnels and alleyways that he could not fit in <laughs> to, to go <laughs> do something that would save their lives it just feels a little bit more like a reach whereas i would say the argument uh most directly to um, to the hateful eight side is that it feels like quentin tarantino there has set the table perfectly and then keeps doubling back to reveal more about everything that he's prepared for you. I don't, I don't ever feel like he's cheating uh, there. And he even has someone pop out from underneath the floorboards. You could say, hey, well, that's where'd that come from? That's, that's bullshit. But it never feels that way when he's doing it. I don't know if it's like a pacing issue. It's the fact that he has the respect that he can do damn near like two and a half hour, three hour movie about these guys drawing guns on each other in the room, going back to Reservoir Dogs and then there's 12 Angry Men. What am I, I going to say about it? That it was pretty good, and then it was better on Showtime in the late 90s. <laughs> yeah, right. It was perfected then. I was real
0: upset when I thought of Breakfast Club. I was like, that's the one we should have done, and it would have fit in between our 2
1: <laughs> <So> <laughs> This like is just show- a way <laughs> to get rid of 10 Cloverfield Lane. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what but... this wrap-up's been about. But... But then
0: we wouldn't have a number in the title for one of our films. So I guess we're geniuses again. (laughs) Right. (laughs) As if that was ever in
1: doubt.